Today, on behalf of WISE, we're going to talk to investing expert, Laura Tarbox, about the essentials of asset allocation. Laura is the founder and CEO of Tarbox Family Office, an independent wealth management advisory she founded over 40 years ago. I'm Stephanie King, a WISE board member. WISE is a nonprofit <coughs> organization whose mission is to empower women and girls through education about personal finance. Thank you, listeners, for joining this conversation with us. And thank you, Laura, for graciously offering to share your wisdom on asset allocation. But before uh, we get into our conversation with Laura, uh, an important and our usual caveat, of course, is that in Laura's work as an investment professional, she provides education and advice to her clients. Advice, of course, must be tailored to an individual's unique circumstances, which we're not able to do in this interview format. So this interview will focus solely on education. And with that, uh, welcome, Laura. Thanks for joining hey. us. Thank you, Stephanie. Looking forward to chatting. Well, I know um, you have just a wealth of experience in this area, um, but we are going to start, I think, you know, with the basics. So um, can you tell us a little bit about what exactly um, one means when, <laughs> when one refers to asset allocation? Yeah, it's, it's a term that I'm sure everybody's heard, but maybe may not know exactly what it means, but it's essentially dividing your assets into different categories and deciding how much you want to invest in each of those categories and essentially building a portfolio that way, mm -hmm. um, which is really become to be known as the way that you're supposed to invest really. You know, most professionals embrace some some um, type of asset allocation approach as opposed to, you know, people tend to ask me, what's a hot investment to invest in right now? And that's not really how you should be approaching your investment. You wanna know how each potentially hot investment fits into your overall plan and asset allocation. So you really need to start by figuring out how much you want to invest in different categories, such as stocks, bonds, real estate, et cetera. Great, yeah, and that leads right into my next question, which is um, why is it so important to have a mix of asset types? Yeah, so it's important for a couple of reasons. And, you know, very generally, we can talk about just stocks and bonds. If we're talking about a, a liquid investment portfolio, uh, you can talk about gold, real estate, commodities, lots of different types of assets. But, you know, very generally, just looking at stocks and bonds, which should make up the bulk of most people's liquid investment portfolios, um, reasons to, to, take that asset allocation approach and have different different types of assets in your, your bucket, uh, so to speak, is because they different asset classes tend to perform differently over in the same time period. Um, unlike last year, when both stocks and bonds did very poorly, that's a highly unusual. In fact, we haven't had a year like that since the Great Depression, where both stocks and bonds did that badly in a year. Um, no surprise on the bonds um, performing so badly because of the dramatic rise in interest rates, because of course, um, bonds and interest rates are, bond prices and interest rates are inversely related. Uh, but usually when stocks are doing well, bonds might not be doing so well. When bonds are doing well, stocks aren't doing so well. So it helps you smooth out your returns on your portfolio over time by having assets in different classes that aren't exactly correlated to each other. So the other, the other reason I think it's important to 
um, invest in a mix of asset types is if you have a good balanced portfolio of different asset classes, I think it helps you stay invested during rough markets. You, you kind of know that you have the right mix for your goals. And it kind of, I've experienced that it's uh, helped people kind of hang in there during the rough times a little easier. Mm -hmm. Great. So just to, to recap a little bit. So it's important to invest in a mix of asset types, um, really to, to try to better manage risk um, that in most market environments, different asset types are not moving in lockstep with each other. Um, yep. You mentioned um, the word liquid a few times. Can you just clarify a little bit what you mean um, when you refer to liquid investments? Yeah, I, in liquid investments that are tradable, um, that have daily liquidity on a stock exchange. Uh, so usually that's what we're looking at when we're building a portfolio at the asset allocation. We usually don't take into account people's um, personally owned real estate or their, their residents, for example, into that category. When we're doing overall financial planning, that's part of, um, part of what we look at. But as far as just building the portfolio, talking about a liquid portfolio at a, at a brokerage firm. Um, though you could have liquid real estate investments, that's a category, real estate investment trust REITs. Um, there are different types of real estate that is liquid that could be one of the asset classes you include when you're looking at, at uh, how to put your portfolio together. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. So when you're thinking about all the different types of investments, including things like real estate, the liquid investments would be the things that you could sell fairly quickly um, to raise cash if needed. So exactly. Trade. Exactly. Um, but now that you say that, you know, we would typically say that if you expect to need the money within five years, you probably don't want to invest it in the stock market. Mm -hmm. Right. So that actually leads great next question, which is, so how do you think about the right mix? And so you mentioned, um, depending on, you know, how soon you need the money, you might not want to put a lot in stock. So how, how do you walk an investor through just thinking about how to make that mix of investment types? Yeah, so that's, um, you know, and, and it is, I, I guess I should have said right up front, it is the most important decision you make when you're investing is how you split your pie, how you put this mix together. It's the biggest driver of returns is how how you kind of split your personal pie is among these asset classes. So uh, you should be taking into account your age, what is your overall asset level, um, your risk tolerance, and, and your time horizon, which may or may not relate to age. You know, you may have a, a pot of money that you are going to use at a certain time to buy a house. So it doesn't necessarily mean you're close to retirement. Um, but all those things come into play to help determine what your, your mix should be. And, and one thing about that is that, um, you know, in general, you, you think about wanting to get a little more conservative in your investments as you get closer to retirement or as you get older. And that's, that's generally true, uh, but not always, because, you know, depending on when you retire, you know, in your life expectancy, you could have 30 years ahead of you. You, you still may have a very long-term horizon when you retire, so you don't necessarily want to get too conservative because um, the stock portion of your portfolio is the growth engine and you need to have some exposure there to get good returns on your portfolio over time. The bond portion is kind of the ballast of the portfolio to kind of protect you 
and um, offer some stability in the portfolio normally, <laughs> except for 2022 was not the case. Um, but another lesson is, you know, you don't, you don't have a loss if you don't sell. And you shouldn't no. sell if you don't need the money in a, in a rough market. Right. Assuming you're allocated appropriately. <laughs> right. So that, that really ties back to, um, we haven't, we haven't talked about it in explicit terms, but basically, you know, you're taking the perspective of a long-term investor, right? If you're going to be investing in securities, liquid assets, like stocks and bonds that go up and down over the short term that you um, want to make sure you have a long enough time horizon so that you're not forced to sell when um, maybe the market has, um, you know, sold off in a panic, let's say. Yep. Um, so I think, you know, it, it, great food for thought in terms of thinking about your investment mix, how many more years you have left to work to, to build your base of assets before you start yep. drawing down, um, yep. you know, what's your risk tolerance? Do you have the risk tolerance to hold when things are rough in the markets? Um, yep. you certainly wouldn't want to jump in if you were going to um, panic at the worst possible time. Um, and then I guess cash needs, you know, would be another sure. brought up, um, you know, saving for a down payment on a house that might suggest a different uh, asset mix, at least in the near term. Um, right. And, and, Yep. And we find when, you know, when people are drawing from their portfolio for living expenses, that that will definitely affect uh, the asset allocation as well. We'll usually want to be a little more conservative, a little more in bonds at that point. Mm -hmm. um, and I, you know, the starting point um, for us is always a 60% stock, 40% bond portfolio. That's, I think, now pretty universally called a moderate portfolio. I think most of the large asset managers and, and mutual fund companies and so on tend to use that as a definition. I think of that as kind of the endowment mix, kind of a standard endowment model is 60% stocks, 40% bonds. And of course you need to diversify within those categories as well. Uh, but at a very top level, a 60-40 is kind of a basic portfolio that we think of as an all weather portfolio. You're still going to get a pretty good portion of those stock market returns, but have some nice protection on the downside from the bonds. Um, when somebody's still working, earning, adding to their portfolio, they can be more aggressive than that. Uh, perhaps 80% in stocks and 20% uh, in bonds. But usually once somebody's uh, stopped working and stopped adding to their nest egg, you know, you want to look at a moderate uh, allocation or even something more conservative, maybe 50% stocks, 50% bonds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think it's super important for people to consider their unique um, risk tolerances, their unique circumstances, and um, consulting really with an expert about their unique circumstances before making um, any decisions for themselves. But but certainly, the more risk tolerant, the more focused on growing the portfolio, the longer term horizon you have, um, the more aggressive you may be in in allocating to riskier things like stocks. Um, you mentioned as well that, you know, the stocks and bonds are kind of the core of the portfolio, um, but there are other ways through, you know, things like mutual funds that investors can get access to beyond those two categories. Um, 
you know, are, can you tell us a little bit about some of the other categories one might look into to get diversified yeah. in stocks and bonds? And then maybe a little bit more about what um, sort of categories within stocks and bonds would create diversification as well? Sure. So um, there's the whole category of alternative investments, which I think people have been hearing a lot about the last couple decades, really. And alternatives could be considered anything that's not a stock and not a bond. So um, real estate could go in that category, commodities, um, private lending, hedge funds, um, you know, uh, precious metals, gold. Uh, and then there's all, you know, windmills, <laughs> um, royalty income streams. There's all, you know, you can get very uh, esoteric on some of these asset classes. Um, but the idea is that they aren't correlated with stocks and bonds. So then in a year like last year, most of those kind of assets, many of them were up, had a positive return. And we typically do allocate about 15% of our client portfolios to alternative assets. Our alts were up um, five to 6% last year, which is what we aim for all the time. In a, in a year where the stock market's up 18%, that doesn't look so good, but um, we have alts because uh, in a year when stocks and bonds aren't performing, they usually hold up a little better. So there, there's a lot that can be done in that category. Uh, one of the nice developments in the financial markets over the last 10, 15 years is that you can purchase um, many of those asset classes in a fairly liquid tradable form, maybe not with complete liquidity. Some, some of the funds have only quarterly liquidity, but you can still get that access without having to invest in a, a limited partnership and have you know K-1 tax returns and that sort of thing. Uh, but you need to, uh, you know, th there's a lot of bad stuff in that category too, that's very high risk and um, really doesn't uh, necessarily play out the way that you expect. So you you probably should be working with a professional if you're going to get too involved in the alternative asset classes. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Unless, unless an investor is, you know, particularly, um, you know, well educated and experienced on the investment front, a professional um, is, is probably most helpful when you're getting beyond kind of the plain vanilla stock and bond funds or ETFs. Yeah. Right. And, and, you know, and I say we do invest in alternative assets, but I will say that, you know, you can do, you will do very well over time with a basic 60, 40 stock and bond portfolio. Uh, there's there's talk right now is the 6040 model dead because it had a bad year last year and um, I very much believe that it's not um, you know over just having looking at the numbers here over a 20-year period which includes you know the great financial crisis and many other uh, rocky markets uh, 6040 portfolio returned about seven and a half percent uh, annualized over uh, since 1980, almost 10%. Um, the, the longer return periods have higher numbers, not because of the stock market, but because the bond market did so well over the last 40 years as interest rates went from 18% to zero. And the reason bonds are struggling now is we've gone from zero back up again. Uh, but long term, long term, the stock market. Uh, returns 10 to 12 percent, and that's been true for almost 100 years. Uh, so I think it's important to get a piece of those returns. And as 
safe and tax efficient way as possible. Yeah, I think throughout this whole discussion, kind of the theme of having a long-term time horizon keeps coming up. I think um, I think you'd agree that you know all these markets go through cycles. Um, you know, businesses go through market cycles, stock markets, bond markets go through cycles. And um, even for someone who spends all day, every day working in the markets, it's it's near impossible to predict what's going to yes. happen. So absolutely <laughs> having, you know, exposure to a variety of, of assets, having a patient long-term time horizon and making sure your mix um, allows you to meet your kind of near-term um, financial requirements, perhaps by having um, an allocation to cash outside your investment portfolio to make sure you don't need to tap it in tough yep. time. Yep, three to six months uh, emergency fund. Three six months living expenses. We usually say in an emergency fund. Um, yeah, but that's very true. And you know, we say that we don't believe anybody knows what's going to happen in any short term period. I mean, that's pre it seems pretty clear, but there are plenty of people in the financial services industry who try to tell you that you know this is what's happening this year, and they know what's going to happen. And we were just looking at some of the numbers of you know, the inflows to mutual funds and, you know, everybody's buying what did well last year, you know, at, you know, just the opposite of what you're supposed to do probably. <laughs> um, and we, we say that we don't have any idea what's going to happen this year and we will build a portfolio with that in mind. So, mm -hmm. you know, we will build a portfolio that's going to work over the long term, and, you know, in any short term period, it's not, it may not do as well, but long term, you know, we we are pretty confident with the numbers that we can get. So is an asset allocation then a set it and forget it? You do it once and forget it? Um, or is there something you need to do um, on a periodic basis? Yeah, so um, yes, you should rebalance. And actually, a set it and forget it isn't actually that bad. <laughs> I, I mean, it, it works out better than you might think. And um, overall, the more you, you muck with your portfolio, the more you trade, the less well you do. And that's, you know, that's true for professionals and, and individual investors. Um, however, that being said, if you can do some smart rebalancing, you're going to you're going to do even a little bit better. And rebalancing is just, um, you know, getting out of the asset that's done well and buying the one that hasn't done as well. And it, it's it's a little counterintuitive and it's a little bit tough to do. And we always kind of laugh because when we will make a shift and we sell you know the thing that's up to buy the thing that's down we often get calls from clients like why are you buying that that went down and um, we'd rather buy low um, and and sell high so we're, we're taking some profits from the thing that went up selling when it's at a high and buying the ones that didn't do well selling at a low and um, there's been a lot of academic research on you know what's the right uh, you know time frame that you should rebalance? Should you do it quarterly, annually, uh, whatever? Uh, there are different ways to do it based on percentages. You can get very tricky with that. But I think generally once a year is probably sufficient for rebalancing. Um, you could do it on a kind of set annual basis or you could do it when the markets had a big move. And we do it on an ongoing basis because we're looking at the tax situation all the time. Uh, that's one of the things that you have to be careful of trading too frequently that you uh, might create some capital gains that are not necessary. 
um, in an IRA account, it's a lot easier. You don't have to worry about that. So sometimes we'll do rebalancing that we want to do in an IRA because we don't have to worry about the tax consequences. And um, in the taxable account, we'll maybe let something run a little longer. Uh, so important to look at the tax consequences when you rebalance too. So you, you can overdo rebalance. Uh, if you've established an asset allocation that you're comfortable with for the long term and one asset class has a great year and one has a terrible year, um, that asset allocation, the percentage in each is going to change, right? Just the market performance has forced your portfolio out of its desired percentages to those asset classes just purely by performance. And so at the very least, um, you know, having a discipline about returning your portfolio to its desired percentages per asset class kind of helps you overcome that uh, discomfort of, of selling your winners and, and buying your losers. Um, and right. over the long term, you know, helps you buy at the right time of the cycle, right? It's hard to buy yep. the bottom of the cycle. Um, yep. And that's, you know, typically when one, um, one uh, enjoys the better future returns. Right. And if it's too tough to do that, there are uh, plenty of mutual funds out there that are all in one funds where they rebalance it for you. Right. Yeah. I, I imagine many of the large mutual fund um, providers offer those types of strategies. And that would make sense for somebody who, um, you know, kind of buys into this idea of setting their asset allocation and taking their own, um, emotions out of it by letting uh, somebody else or, you know, effectively yep. paying, paying the mutual fund company right. to do that work for you, which, you know, I think for, for plenty of people um, would be worth researching, see if that yep. fits, fits their needs. Yep. And, and that you really can't um, overestimate the, the emotional part of it. And, you know, professional investors fall prey to that as well. Um, so it, it's really important to have some kind of discipline that you stick with. I mean, when it feels the worst is, is when you should be buying. Uh, I mean, you know, it's easy to look back and see that, um, having lived through it enough times, um, you know, it's funny, we can typically, I mean, it's, we try to predict, you know, the bottom of the market based on, you know, how many, how many people are, are a little bit freaked out and the panic calls that we get. And, and, and now we know the particular clients who are always going to be calling right at the market bottom. <laughs> and, um, you know, it's when it feels bad is a good time to invest. Yeah. So taking your emotions out of investing is very important. Uh, it's, it's difficult to not got, get caught up in the news. And um, when it feels bad and it's most scary, uh, is probably the time to buy. And it's going to be different every time. It's going to be different causes of, of the market turmoil. And that's why it's not easy to know that you're near a market bottom. Um, so probably shouldn't be trying to call it at all and just stay put. But usually when things feel the worst, it's a good time to buy. <clears throat> yeah, I think one theme that's really coming through is that it's a discipline. There's work up front. You know, whether you employ a professional, whether you get professional help through buying a mutual fund that does some of the work for you, or whether you're doing your own research, um, there's some upfront work, but the more kind of discipline you can put around the process, um, 
the better your ability to take your emotions out of things, um, the more likely better long-term returns you're going to enjoy. So, right. Yeah. And to go back to another question, follow up question that you had asked that I, I didn't touch on is within the stock and bond categories, there's further, um, ways to break that down and, and detail your asset allocation. And there's different ways to slice the stock market. You could look at international versus domestic. You could look at um, market cap size, how big are the companies, large companies, mid-size and small. Um, and, and you should ideally have assets in all those categories. And so you can also um, you know, rebalance among the stock categories. And, and the small companies and large companies tend to, to move in, in different cycles. And um, it's been a large company dominated market for quite a while as the tech companies especially did so well, but that shifted last year and um, small and and mid-sized companies started doing better and are still doing better this year. So it's important to have some of each of those in your portfolio and you could get different funds that have those kind of holdings, a small cap fund, mid cap and large cap, or you could also, as we're saying, kind of do an all in one, but it's important to not be all in large companies. And we see that a lot, especially um, from some of the very large financial services firm that they, firms that they focus on the large company stocks, which has generally done well the last, uh, the last cycle until last year, but um, it's better long-term to be diversified in those different categories. And that's also true in bonds. Um, you might wanna look at having some international Um, bond exposure, not just domestic bonds. And there are lots of different types of bonds out there uh, that you might want to use to diversify your your bonds or fixed income portfolio too. Right. Yeah. Government bonds, corporate bonds, mortgage-backed securities. Um, Sometimes I think people forget about diversifying on the bond side as well. So Mm -hmm. yeah, the theme is is the same for whichever broad category um, is to make sure you have um, you know, variety of exposures within the category as well. Well, Yeah. And and I just want to say about diversification, um, you know, a lot of times people will say, you know, I have these 20 stocks, I'm I'm diversified. And that's, again, where we see their 20 large company growth stocks, all in kind of one category. And that's really one asset class. And it's far more important to be diversified among your asset classes than what's within the asset class. And very few people make money picking stocks anyway in the long run. And we, we um, would much rather um, see people in large um, diversified index type funds that, that track the market. You know you're going to get the market return and you just need to diversify among the asset classes. Mm-hmm. Well, super. So I guess that brings us to, to our summary. Um, if you had to, to leave our listeners with... A couple of takeaways, the most important uh, takeaways when thinking about asset allocation, what would they be? Make sure that your asset mix is appropriate for your situation and um, one that makes sense to you and that you're comfortable enough with that you be willing to stick with it um, through different market cycles. Understand that it's it's built to last through up and down markets. So, um, will enable you to stay the course, hopefully. 
And then do rebalance, uh, especially as the market has dramatic moves, that's a good time to rebalance or be on an annual kind of rebalancing period. So it forces you to buy low and sell high. That, that's really what rebalancing is. Um, and, and again, people's emotions will generally cause them to do the opposite of that. So having a good rebalance uh, discipline will help you be buying at lower prices and selling at the higher prices. And then um, you know, we haven't talked too much about it, we, but we touched on watching out for taxes, super important um, when rebalancing and, and when even choosing um, funds too. Some funds are more tax efficient than others. Um, there's a lot of issues around distributions and capital gains and funds. So um, definitely need to, to consider taxes um, if you're investing outside of an IRA account. Great, and I'll just add, I think a point you made at the very beginning, which is it's worth it to think about your asset allocation, um, asset, the, the way, the mix you choose, uh, the mix of assets you choose for your portfolio is the single most important um, driver of one's long-term return. Yep, and there's a lot of different long-term academic research that suggests that over 90% of uh of your portfolio returns are, are based on the asset allocation you choose, not which particular stocks or bonds you choose. Mm -hmm. So that, that, how, that mix and how you put together your own personal pie is very important. Oh, wonderful. Well, thank you so much for helping us understand a little bit more about asset allocation. Hopefully we, we've inspired some of these listeners um, to do a little research on their own and perhaps uh, reach out and get some professional guidance as, as they uh, try to do this um, for their own portfolios. Thank you again, yes. Laura. Thank you. Here at WISE, we like to highlight the career paths of women who've achieved great success in financial services. Today, on behalf of the WISE podcast series, I have the pleasure of speaking with Laura Tarbox, founder and CEO of Tarbox Family Office in Newport Beach, California. Laura has over 40 years of experience providing investment management and financial advising services to clients in Southern California. And she's also an entrepreneur having founded her own business. Um, thank you, Laura, for, for uh, doing this for us. Thank you for having me, Stephanie. Well, great. So let's, um, let's think back, if you could, to your college graduation. Um, Many of our listeners may be uh, contemplating college or in college right now or recently graduated. Um, did you at that time have a big grand plan for yourself? Uh, no, I did not. I had no idea really what I wanted to do. I started out as a biochem major at UCLA for the first two years and kind of hated that. And I switched to English, which was much easier uh, to the great distress of my parents who wondered what I was going to do with an English degree. Um, and I really had no idea what I wanted to do. I knew I wanted to be successful um, and I wanted to be a leader. And I, I really fell into the financial business, um, working for somebody, uh, actually trading stock options um, in the early days <laughs> and, um, and knocking on doors, um, trying to, to, uh, scare up clients. So, um, actually kind of got disillusioned with the whole industry early on and, and, you know, rediscovered my passion for it when I found the certified financial planner classes in the early 1980s, actually. 
Oh, I see. Um, okay, so you graduated from UCLA with a degree in English. Mm -hmm. and sounds like your first job may have been working. Oh, in first job out of college was waitressing. I was still okay. waitressing, trying to find out what I wanted to do. And then, yeah, the first uh, kind of business job was working for um, a, a man who left a big brokerage firm to start his own firm. And I worked for him and he, he mentored me in the early days. And um, yeah, and then I, and I, I didn't really fall in love with it until I found the financial planning uh, approach and program. And it was still pretty new then. It was a new concept. And uh, was, I was very excited about the holistic approach of the financial planning and bringing it all together you know, the investing and estate planning and taxes and cash flow planning, insurance, um, really loved that approach. And um, I, I actually jumped right in after I finished my CFP program to teaching it and um, taught, you know, taught for 30 years or so and was the program director at, at UC Irvine for the CFP program and just uh, really passionate about that financial planning approach, which, you know, isn't everybody in the industry. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, I, I think especially for women, it's such a great path, uh, to take for a career. And I was actually just reading today that, uh, the number of women CFPs has still not budged. It's 24% of all CFPs are women, which is just crazy to me. Um, I mean, it's, it's such a wonderful career that, again, that I think women are well, well suited for and often don't consider. Right. Right. Well, I, you know, as you know, a longtime um, advisory board member of WISE that so many of us at WISE work in financial services. And I think we're constantly scratching our head, wondering why more women haven't joined us in this business, because it is such a, a fascinating and rewarding career. I'm, I'm curious how, so it sounds like these um, certified financial planning classes really had a, a significant impact on you. How did you discover them? How how did you get turned on to, to the, to these classes? I, I think, I, you know, I don't even really remember, except I was thinking of leaving the leaving finance and, and doing something different because I thought it was all sales for mm -hmm. one. And, you know, where I was, it, it, it kind of was, I mean, cold calling and knocking on doors, literally, and a very, um, you know, um, just a focus only on the investment side. And I liked, I liked the investment side. I didn't like the sales side that all didn't really click for me. Um, so finding this, finding the program, I, I heard about it and um, you know, I, I'm, um, I think I, my, my CFP number is 2000 something. And now there's, there's 95,000. So I, I was pretty early on, mm -hmm. uh, on, on that. Um, I love this idea though, that you, you know, got a great education, but didn't know what you wanted to do with it, right? It took some time. Mm -hmm. um, you you took a job, you didn't like it, but something great came out of that job you didn't like, right? You, you learned what you didn't like, yep. but you also got a little glimmer of some aspect of the job that, that you did like. And that job allowed you to kind of find a path that worked better for your skill set and for your interests. So, yeah, uh, what a great and and my my early mentor was was really great, um, helping me on a lot of things. But we really didn't see eye to eye on the financial planning side because 
um, you know, we really hadn't figured out the business model. And, and I think he saw that as something superfluous and I saw it as the core to everything. And I, it's what kind of drove me out the door ultimately to start my own firm. That, and I, I tell this story, he's since passed and I, I loved him dearly, but he was a messy chain smoker. As in, you know, ashes would end up on my desk when he came in and talked to me. <laughs> and that was the thing that I think finally, that's it. I need to get my own business, my own office. And, um, you know, I, I, I did. Mm -hmm. That's wonderful. Yeah, I think your um, inclination to, to pursue more of a financial planning path was ahead of its time. I mean, certainly you're probably talking about the 1980s when, you know, the business was largely driven by commissions um, yep. and that's changed a lot and, and for the better, I think. And yep. um, I imagine you think similarly that um, you, you kind of got in on the, the first wave of a big change in the industry that overall. For sure. Both, both the financial planning focus and the, kind of the shift from commissions to fees. And I think uh, I made that shift relatively early on by the late 80s. And uh, immediately felt um, better, more free, uh, more broke. <laughs> I mean, it, it was a tougher road to get started, really. Um, but I, I it was at a professional meeting and it was kind of a new business model that, you know, you could work just on a fee basis. And so I did embrace that early on. And, um, you know, between that and the financial planning approach, and then I, I was just from then on just knew I'd found my place and was super happy with the career. And, and it's why I did so much teaching. And I really enjoyed that because I, I wanted to get people excited about the industry and, you know, especially the financial planning focus. Um, the other thing I just remember so much is that people that were with financial services firms that weren't really focused on the financial planning, when they kind of got into the financial planning um, kind of group, it, it was such an open group, everybody sharing, wanting to help each other, very different than the competitive thing that existed at the brokerage firms, I think in those days. And, and even now it's like, it's, it's, we have so many study groups of, of peers locally, I have, I have local, globally, um, nationally, where we, we share information, we, we bear our souls to each other, we trade clients, we refer clients to each other. It's just a very collegial um, group on the financial planning side of the business. I, I don't think it's the same on the other side. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it, I guess it doesn't surprise me just because, you know, I think those who get into financial planning are are very aligned, I think, with mm -hmm. their client's best interests. And in order to serve a client's best interests, you need to, um, I don't know, build a network to make sure you're staying educated and yep. sharing practices and all of that. So it sounds like you were able to build that network. Even though you have your own firm, it sounds like you've, you've really worked hard to build a network beyond your own firm. For sure. And in the early days, it was just me. <laughs> and then, you know, then just a few people. And I remember, you know, coming up with the, the term of professional loneliness. I just felt like I was out there alone. And it was scary because, you know, we were giving advice to clients on, you know, really important stuff. And, and I really did need that peer 
group to share information, you know, bounce ideas off of, double check things. And um, again, that was so important. And I know, you know, we're just talking about mentoring um, kind of, that was, um, it was hard to find role models then. I mean, it's, I think it probably still is, but it was, there were so few women then. Um, and, and, and really not that many people as young as I was either. That was a little tough in the early years. I remember <laughs> meeting a prospective client in the lobby. Uh, and I just remember her saying, oh my gosh, you're just a baby <laughs> or something like that. <laughs> I was so embarrassed. I was horrified. I had my suit on and uh, the whole bit. But um, yeah, just um, there weren't a lot of women. And and there was um, this amazing woman, Eileen Sharkey. I don't know um, if anybody would know much about her now. She passed away, I think, just about a year ago. But she she was the president of the, um, you know, what's now the Financial Planning Association, the FPA, and she was this English woman, you know, just very proper and, you know, lovely accent. And, and she was kind of the face of financial planning in those days, being the head of that organization. And Money Magazine was the big, you know, magazine in those days. And, and the only, everybody read Money Magazine. There weren't so many others. And she was on the cover of Money Magazine in this red suit, looking amazing. And um, it was such a big moment. It was a big moment for financial planning and especially uh, for her as, as a woman in financial planning. And um, she was um, so helpful to me and so encouraging. And, and, I, and actually when it was, um, when I had my own firm and it was just me and I was struggling and trying to figure it out, she, she encouraged me to take that leap and hire my first employee. And she said, you know, if you get somebody else in here, it's going to allow you to be much more productive and bring in more clients and get out there. And, and she was right. And it was really the push I needed. It was, it was so helpful to me. Um, and it was really awesome because we ended up on a board together a few years ago and I hadn't stayed in touch or seen her. And, and I'd never told her how important her mentoring was to me. And she had no idea. And I said, no, you were really instrumental in me doing this, this, and this. And um, so, you know, I think it's nice to, um, to thank your mentors, you know, even down the line, once you you've achieved that success that you're, you're trying for too. So that was cool. Oh, that's lovely. And I think um, it sounds to me like you really were proactive, right? In finding mentors in building a network to help you kind of learn, help you get better. Um, how did you meet? How did you meet your mentor? So uh, I went to the um, the annual retreat of the Financial Planning Association, which is was always in a cool place. This was actually at UC Santa Cruz, and you know there was one of the sessions, and they were um, forming committees for the professional organization, and they asked you know who wanted to be involved, and I raised my hand. I got involved on a committee. And I got to know, you know, it was, that was such a great experience for me getting to know all these people. I ended up, you know, being on the committee, ended up on the national board and just having um, peers and mentors around the country. Uh, I mean, such a believer of getting involved in the professional associations. Um, and then that, and then a st the study group concept, which is really 
big, I think, in our industry. I don't know if other industries really have that, but you know, I, I've given a lot of talks on study groups and how you get in one, how you form one. Um, you know, in financial services, I believe there are study groups for people just getting started, people wanting to get in the business, um, and people who've been in the business a long time. My national study group, um, we've been together 28 years. We've been through so much together. And it's been essential to me. And I'm, I'm now in an international study group and the same thing kind of at a whole different level. Um, and, you know, we, a lot of the big companies, you know, Schwab and BlackRock and so on, they help people find a study group or form a study group for people just getting started or interested in the business to people who've been in the business a while. So there's some good resources for that. But, uh, and I think women tend to, help each other more right I don't know is that, is that okay to say that but I just um yeah and I've also been in an all women's study group which is which is pretty cool too mm -hmm. that's wonderful yeah it's wonderful that in an industry that is minority women you've been able to find such great support among your female colleagues and really as as an entrepreneur I mean I think of an entrepreneur as having kind of a lonely business existence, but it sounds like you went out of your way to make sure you had connection, support, continuing education. And through that network, it's helped you thrive. So what a great. Yeah. Yep. Well, and I, I know I am uh, by nature, a joiner <laughs> so that has served me well. I, I mean, I, and I do feel for people who are more introverted um, and, you know, I, I think that, that that shouldn't scare folks away from the business. You know, there, it's probably a little tougher to make some of those connections, but, um, that, that shouldn't, shouldn't keep you, keep you out of the business. Mm -hmm. Well, super. So I know you've had a tremendous amount of success in your career. Um, any regrets, anything you would do over if you could? Um, I think I'm by nature pretty confident. I am a risk taker, uh, but I I would be more so. I mean, I would be I would take more risks. I'd be more confident. I think kind of summing that that up would probably be be more myself. And especially, you know, in the early days, things were different. I, I mean, I when I had my firm early on, you know, I set the rules, and the rules were you couldn't women couldn't wear pants. I mean, that was how it was. And I can't believe I ever had a firm where I had that rule, but that's, you know, it was like that in those days. And I feel like a lot of that type of thing as, you know, as the world kind of came along and changed, but I got more confident in, in being um, myself. And, and I think, um, you know, I think now maybe people in general are more comfortable, comfortable doing that kind of, you know, being yourself, even if it's standing out, you're kind of building your brand if you're a little different. And um, one of the best pieces of advice I got from another mentor who uh, my dad was in banking, actually on the, we're on the IT side of banking, but I met a couple interesting women through him. And one woman uh, whose name was Nell Cox. She was a high up senior VP at City National Bank. And she, it was the 80s when I first met her and she only wore purple. And, and purple is my favorite color, always has been. I love the connotations of purple, you know, wealth, royalty, you know, spiritual heights, you know, red and blue. I don't know, it's just purple's awesome. And it makes me happy. 
It makes me really happy to have it around me. And I remember, you know, she would, she would encourage me to express my, my love for purple. And, and I, I remember deciding that I could get away from that black and white stationery and I could have purple on my stationery. And, you know, stationery, paper stationery was a big thing then, you know, not so much now. And it was such a stepping out to do that. And of course, um, you know, one thing led to another and my office is very purple. I have a purple couch here, purple walls, you know, that deep, royal, beautiful purple. Um, so I kind of embraced my my purpleness and myself. And that was me being being more myself. And I probably... I wish I'd done more of that earlier, sooner, stronger, and just um, felt confident in in doing it my way, which looked a little bit different than most of the industry at that point. Yeah, I mean, I think just listening to you talk about your career, Laura, there's such a theme of doing it your way, right? <laughs> like you like the business, you want to do a different way, you figured out how to get educated on that, pursue it. Um, you built your own network. You've just, you know, done it all. I'm so impressed. Um, so in terms of career advice, it sounds like maybe we got your career advice, which is yeah, be yourself, yourself. embrace your strengths <laughs> and your, your personality. You know, it, different is probably better. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and it didn't. And when I was younger, it didn't feel safe to be different and I and the people who are different and maybe stood out a little I think are people who've achieved a lot of success I mean you can think about that across industries um, that you know and that's probably true and and maybe it's harder for women because we're still by far the minority in financial services and we feel like we need to fit in and not stand out too much and I and I I would caution against um, feeling that way and um, really embrace people or uh, encourage people to embrace the risks and be yourself. Mm -hmm. What a wonderful sentiment. Thank you so much for <laughs> sharing. Uh, what a, what a great, great story. Thank you, Laura.